You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. I will be reading from Jude verses 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, the prediction of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoted to the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Christina. Great to see everyone here this evening. Thank you for being here on a holiday weekend. Hey, before we jump into the text, I want to have another, another brief announcement on Sunday... September 19th, which is in two weeks, we are going to be having a family meeting here in the, here at Calvary in our our worship space. We'll spend time worshiping and then we're going to talk together about the last 18 months and where we're going. We want to move forward together as elders. We're excited to share some of this with you, to have some real talk around where we've been, who's with us, and where we're going. We think that's really important in this season. So, if you're partner here with us, if you are visiting, hanging out with us, we'd love for you to come. Come come and check out and listen to where we're going. If you're listening online or maybe you catch this later in the week, I want to encourage you to come, to make time to be here with us. We think that's going to be a valuable time for our church. Every summer, our family, Katie and our boys, we try to get out of Tulsa at least for a week to go to the mountains. We love the mountains. We love the mountains in the summertime in particular for all kinds of reasons. This year we had the opportunity to go to Breckenridge in Colorado and we loved our time there. It was great. It was not restful. Uh, if, you, if you've traveled with little ones, then you know it's not restful, but it was really, really great. If you have done that, traveled with little, little ones, then you know that much of what you do, your schedule, how you kind of plot out what you're going to do from day to day is dependent on nap time. Got to have nap time. Do not miss nap time, in particular with my boys. Do not miss nap time. So in the mornings on each day, we would go out and get a, get a good hike in. We'd go around and there's a lot of old mines in the Breckenridge area, which Benai, my oldest son, loved seeing all these old abandoned mines. It was really cool. Then we'd either do a picnic lunch or we would go back to our, back to our Airbnb and, and do lunch. Post-lunch, the little boys would go to bed, Katie would stay with them, and then Benaya and I would go out for about an hour and do some mountain biking. Now, Benaya, my oldest son, is six. He is a killer on a mountain bike. Like, you don't understand how good this little boy is on a mountain bike. Single track, weaving in and out of trees, uphill, downhill, climb, like... There are instances where at six, he outrides me. It won't be long before he outrides me 
all the time. And so we're, we're going on our mountain bike, and we found this one particular trail that was, that was, it was a pretty decent climb for about three quarters of a mile. Single track, winding around the side of this mountain. It spit us out a couple different, uh, like, meadow areas. We can see great vistas, beautiful, beautiful. But eventually, I was kind of wondering, like, is this a loop, or are we going to need to turn around? You know, I don't want to get lost on the mountain somewhere. But we, we rounded this corner, and then we saw a bunch of different forks uh, that, that this trail broke into. And one of them was a mountain bike only. It was a downhill. It was actually a pump track. So there was little jumps, tabletops, washouts, all kinds of really cool stuff. And so he was like, Dad, pump track. And I was like, yeah, man, let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. So we, so we went down, downhill pump track, and he killed that. Like, it's not even a big deal. He's a stud, I'm telling you. We got back to the bottom. He's like, dude, let's do it again. I was like, yeah, I'm in. Let's do it again. So we climbed back up and came down the pump track again. Same deal. Totally killed it. But this time, I was like, hey, man, you want to do it again? He's like, no, Dad, I'm tired. I was like, what do you mean? What do you mean you're tired? He's like, I'm just, I'm just really tired, Dad. And so I was like, all right, well, we'll, we'll head back. We'll do something else. And so we went back to the, ended up going back to our condo. Uh, but the point is, this trail, it was either climbing or descending. There was no flat. There was no like resting in like your granny gear. You're either climbing or descending. And so, you know, he got tired. I got tired too. Like 10,000 feet, you get tired. What's the point? You're either going up or down. No flat. No flat. No neutral. In a similar way in our series in Jude, the Jude is letting us know he's, he's, he wants you to see as a Christian that as it relates to the world, as it relates to teaching, there's very little, if any, flat or neutral ground or teaching. Very little. You see, the, the false teachers in our culture that we've been talking about over the last month or so going through Jude are going to teach you in a particular direction. They're going to lead you in a particular direction, and that direction is always away from God. While the scripture, we think about the Bible, God's active presence in it, will teach you, it will lead you in a distinct direction. This direction will be toward him. It's like going up and down the mountain on this trail. You're going, either going up or you're going down. There's no neutral. They're distinct. They're not similar. So I want you to see a couple of points, too. Um, this evening in our text. First, moving toward the world, and second, moving toward God. But before we do that, let me pray. Our Father, thank you for your love for sinners like us. Thank you, Lord, that you have loved us in such a way to give up your Son that we might live. That you've given us your Spirit that we might carry on in this life. God, that you have promised to be with us now in the midst of whatever's going on, all the chaos around us, and, Father, that you've prepared a place for us. You're so good. You're so faithful. I'd like the psalmist in Psalm 119, open our eyes that we would find wonders in your word. Amen. So moving toward the world, remember the context of Jude. Much of the letter is devoted to warning you, warning the, his original readers about false teachers, those who teach 
things that are contrary to God, contrary to the kingdom. The broad point is that you have to be aware of the voices and influences that are shaping you. You got to be aware. These false teachers can be persuasive. In fact, the scriptures tell us like we shouldn't be surprised when people trade the truth of God for the narratives of the world. This is what Jude says. Look with me at verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Jude here is standing in a long line, a long biblical theme that I would suggest to you goes all the way back to Genesis, in that the people of God are opposed in unique ways by the world. Unique ways. Now here, he's likely referencing a text like 2 Timothy 3, where Paul says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So Jude is saying, hey, Paul said this, and they agree. And I, I will not be convinced at this point that this description from Paul doesn't, doesn't point at specific, specific parts of our culture or large cross-sections of our culture. Biblically speaking, when the New Testament authors say the last days, they are referencing the time frame between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So like now, the last days. So how do Jude's words here, Paul's words, this biblical theme that is, is, is deeply seated and goes all the way back to Genesis that talks about the opposition that the people of God face in unique ways, how does all of that apply to our culture, apply to your life right now? In other words, how is our culture a false teacher? How is it a false teacher now? And what is it teaching you, what is it teaching us collectively that is contrary to God, contrary to the things of God, the kingdom, the things that he's revealed in his word? Now listen, there are all kinds of examples. Like we could, we could talk here all night about examples. But for the sake of time, let's deal with two. So first, individualism. Individualism is one of the most deeply held ideals of our culture, and that works itself out in all kinds of ways. But for our purposes, we have to understand, you have to understand, how the cultural ideal of individualism affects you, how it forms you, and how, it, how then that affects your relationship with the Lord. Now, some people might say, I love Jesus but not the church. Some people might think that their relationship with God is primarily, primarily or even exhaustively between them and God. Like it's just me and God, or it's just Jesus and me. Now to put a sharper edge on that, there may be many that as a result of the last 18 months and all the difficulties associated with COVID and the responses to COVID from the church, things like 
live streams, things like virtual gatherings, because of that, think that life in the church is arbitrary. I'll just watch it. I'll just watch it. Virtual worship, a worship, a virtual worship service is not a church. Now, it's, it's a great tool. It's been a lifeline to us in the last 18 months. Thank you, God, for that tool. But friends, it's not a church. It's not. We want to take advantage of the tools and use them how they're intended without allowing them to be overinflated in their importance. Those ideas that I can just kind of view from afar, whether even here or via a screen somewhere, that's not a biblical idea. You will not find anything in the New Testament that suggests a believer can live on the, on, on the outside, the periphery of the church. You won't find that. Rather, you find Paul pleading with people to engage. You find the New Testament, in the, in the New Testament, you find in, in Acts in particular, you find the, the, the early church is a family. Like in that context, if you came to Jesus in the, in the primarily Jewish context in the very beginning, you come to Jesus, you lost your family. You lost everything. And the church is a new family. It's a new set of relationships to be deeply entwined in. Now, obviously, our culture is different than that culture. But the principles of family and being connected, you think about what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, that the church is a body. Works together. It can't work together if it's not together. If anyone thinks or suggests that a person, a Christian, can have a biblical relationship that leads to their flourishing apart from life in the church, they don't know what they're talking about. This is, that's not a biblical thing. That's an American thing. That's like a, I'm just going to do me kind of thing. This individualism seeps into my thinking. No. No. It's a foreign idea to the New Testament. So with urgency, friends, let me, let me, let me suggest to you, let me warn you. We have to be so aware of how the false teachers of our culture teach us, how they form us in ways that might be implicit. They might be under the surface. Individualism is one of those teachings that will lead a person, if it takes root, away from the body, and it can lead a person away from the Lord. Like, I, can, I could give you names off the top of my head for people who I know that are no longer following Jesus because this, this poison of individualism got into their soul and it changed their outlook. I've got to be so aware. How does, how does the culture influence me? How does it oppose me? Another idea, another way that our culture is a false teacher uh, works through distractions. Distractions. I want to suggest to you that the opposition we face in our culture is much less overtly aggressive than the opposition faced in the early church or than places in other parts of the world now. It's much less aggressive. In fact, I would categorize it as passive-aggressive. It's passive-aggressive 
opposition. It has the same intent. It wants you to not be close to Jesus. It wants to pull you away from, from, the, from the Lord. But so instead of intimidating, torturing, killing uh, believers through aggressive uh, violence... Here, in our culture, the passive-aggressive opposition that we face lulls believers to sleep. Lulls us to sleep through distractions that are not neutral. They're not flat. They're passive-aggressive. So instead of the sword as a weapon, it's Netflix. It's being mired in politics. It's being plugged into a device all the time that is constantly forming you in the image of the world. You've got to be aware of how these distractions that might look like they're benign, they're, how they actually form me into something that is not compatible with the kingdom. You've got to be super aware. And when I see that taking place, I've got to take action to move away from some of that. Over time, these passive-aggressive distractions, what do they do? They make us look and think and behave just like the world. And when we think about it and their their power to, to form and to influence, that makes a whole lot of sense. Makes sense to me. If I'm spending my time totally ingesting the world, why would I look like anything else? Distractions. It's not aggressive. No one's getting in your face. You're not in danger of death or imprisonment. But you're in danger of being led oh so subtly away from the Lord through distraction. So you've got to be aware and intentional about creating space and focusing on the Lord, focusing on the kingdom, finding him, encountering him in his word. Not because somebody like me told you to do that, like, that's not it at all. Rather, it's because God forms you through counterformation into his likeness through connection with him, through connection with his people. That's how, we, that's how we're formed to look like Jesus. Have you ever thought about how that actually happens. Like, how do I look more like Jesus? How does that work? I need the Lord to encounter me and change me and form me and mold me. And if I'm distracted all the time, look, with my face buried in my phone, chances of that happening aren't great, or at least they're slow. So we have to have eyes to see. How does the culture oppose us here? It's easy for us to think, ah, we're Americans, ah, we don't, we don't face opposition, but I want to suggest to you we do, it just looks different. So we've got to think critically about that how. How? In particular, as we deal with the ongoing presence of COVID in our, in our lives, the enemy and the world would love nothing more than for you to be alone to lapse into individualism and to be distracted by all kinds of nonsense that would pull you away from being formed by the Lord. Things that will shape you into the image of the world rather than the image of God. Things that will lead you not toward God, but toward the world. There's very little neutral ground. It's not flat. It's up or it's down. It's left or it's right in this case. 
But thankfully, the text here in Jude doesn't end with this opposition. It doesn't end with the problem. He actually gives you, the people of God, a solution. This brings me to the second point I want you to see this evening. Moving toward God. Look with me at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Did you notice 20 and 21 are calls to action? They're calls to action. There are two imperatives here in the text that I want to highlight for you. First, he says, build yourself up in the most holy faith. Second, he says, keep yourself in the love of God. Now, maybe part of, part of your mind hears those two imperatives and says, how in the world am I going to do that? Or how in the world is that gospel-centered? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that together. To frame what Jude is doing here, I, wanna, I want you to turn to a passage in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bible, flip over to Matthew chapter 11. And to, again, to, to, to act as a frame for understanding what Jude is doing, I want to look at a passage in Matthew that has become dear to me in the last year or so. It's become dear to many in our church. Matthew 11, pick it up in 28. Jesus says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So how does the text in Matthew frame our conversation surrounding the text in Jude? What, what does Jesus mean in Matthew eleven twenty eight when he says, come to me? What does he mean? What does coming to me, in reference to Jesus, what does that look like? I want to suggest to you that Jude gives us insight into the answers to that question. Look back with me at verse 20. He says this, But beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Of God. I'm going to suggest to you that, in a sense, Jude is outlining some of what Jesus means when he says, come to me. I bet you didn't realize that the Bible actually commands you to build yourself up. Now, not in a self-aggrandizing way, not in a self-centered way. Jude is presupposing that the best thing for you to do, the highest good, the highest aim that you can aim for in your life is to seek the Lord. Why? Because seeking the Lord leads to life. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, meaning that being close to the Lord, walking with the Lord, leads to life and joy and flourishing. So to build yourself up in Jude 20, in this Matthew eleven twenty eight frame, is coming to Jesus. It's coming to me. It's being close to God. It's turning toward Him. It's laying down the distractions and the individualism of our time and saying, you, Lord, lead the life. 
In fact, John 6, I think, highlights this for us. When, when, the, when Peter says, after all the disciples are taken off, Lord, where else would we go? John 6, 68, you have the words to life. So think about where we currently are. The COVID virus continues along with all the effects, all the harm, all the suffering cascading at this point. If you look at the world in the last week with Hurricane Ida in the Gulf and on the north, on the, in the Northeast, all the destruction from that, the last month as Afghanistan has collapsed into, into chaos, all of that suffering, all of that pain is unresolved. And you could pull people here over the last little while and, and we would find individual cases of suffering that are unresolved. Unresolved. Trey read from Lamentations earlier, which is a perfect example. He writes that, that entire book, and in verse 3, while Jerusalem is burning, they don't rebuild it for a hundred years. It's unresolved. Unresolved. Pain, tension, suffering. So what do you do? What do you do? in the face of unresolved pain, suffering, that you don't know how to categorize, or maybe that you will never know how to categorize or understand. Jude says, build yourself up in faith. Build yourself up in faith. In the midst of unresolved tension, suffering, pain, build yourself up by opting into faith, by moving toward God, choosing to trust the Lord. It's like the Matthew eleven twenty eight frame. He says, come to me and you'll find rest for your weary soul. You'll find that my burden is light. You'll find that I'm gentle and lowly heart. But you have to come to me to find all of those things. If you don't come to me, you won't find any of them. In fact, if you look at Matthew 11, you can look up higher in the page and find in the, in, the, in, the, in the immediate context, Jesus is pronouncing woes and judgments on cities that don't come to him. That come to him. Come to me, is what he's saying. Similarly here, Jude is making the case that to build yourself up is to move toward the Lord, opting to trust Him, opting to believe His promises in the midst of unresolved suffering and pain. And everyone said, easier said than done. Easier said than done. Having faith in the midst of unresolved pain and suffering might be the most difficult thing that you ever do. It might be. So as a church, we should ask the question, how can we help one another in the midst of the opposition that we face, in the midst of unresolved suffering and pain, opt in the faith? How can we do that for each other? Because I would be willing to bet that apart from one another, we're going to have a really hard time doing that. In other words, apart from the church, on your own, the chances of you doing that are very small. In fact, this is one of the reasons God has prescribed for us the church, because He knows, He knows that we need one another in this way. Okay.
How can we help one another opt into faith? Number one, a few things here. Be around. Be around. There is a mysterious power that happens when the people of God are together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it this way, the physical presence of other believers is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. It's like when Jesus said, where two or three gather, I'm there. What do you think he meant? What do you think he meant? He meant this, that there's power, the Holy Spirit and himself, they're, they're with us when we're together. Now, can we quantify that? I don't know. But when you're in a context like that and you understand that, hey, there is a mysterious power that happens when all of us together are opposed by the same enemy, we come together, we share what's difficult, we move forward, we ask for faith, we pray together, and God works. He works. But in order for that to happen, we've got to be around. We've got to be around. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We've got to be around. You're like, Ryan, I'm busy. Yeah, I get it. We've got to prioritize what brings life and joy and flourishing. In light of eternity, I got it. Check. I'm busy too. Ryan, what about all of the the problems that we're experiencing because of the pandemic and all these other things. Yeah, I understand. No one said be unwise. No one. No one. But we have to creatively, uh, with, the, with the power and help from God, figure out how do we be around? How do we do that? Because a part, listen, it's not, we know where it's going to go. It's going to go in the ditch. That's what happens. It's like this, if, if you're trying to water your grass, which my grass, if you're from Oklahoma, you know your grass dies in the, in, the, in the summer. Mine made it all the way through like the first week of August, and then it was like it went off a cliff. It's just like brown. So I'm out there watering, hoping, and praying, please, Lord, I don't want my fescue to die. I want it to live. I, I don't know. But you know what would make that even more difficult? If there was a kink in the hose and there was no water coming out. Then the chances of my grass living are zero. They're like one maybe now, but it would be zero. When we're not together, even being creative and trying to figure things out, like my spiritual life will dwindle like the water coming out of that hose. Jesus said where two or three are gathered together, I'm there. So if I'm not there, I'm, I'm, the hose is kinked and I'm not, I'm not getting the life that I need. So friends, be around too. Encouragement. Dane Ortland, pastor and author, has suggested that we grossly underestimate the spiritual power of encouragement for the encourager and for the encouraged. I've said this a bunch of times, that God works in his people through his people. And one of the ways that that happens, or one of the results of that, you can see is like my faith is built up. Your faith is built up in a unique way when we're encouraged by another believer. Encouragement helps me opt into faith, in particular in the midst of challenge, in the midst of unresolved suffering and pain. Encouragement helps me trust and believe God. At minimum, at minimum, it helps me to see... Um, that I'm not alone because somebody else 
is moving toward me. And at most, it helps me to understand that God sees me in my suffering when he sends somebody else to speak life into my life. God sees me, not from a million billion miles away, but he sees me with enough clarity to send somebody to speak to me. What happens from that? Faith grows. I'm able to opt in. I'm able to be built up because the Lord is working in his people through his people. Number three, and finally, um, prayer. When, we, when you pray for another person, when we pray for one another, faith grows and is built up. Okay? And listen, I, I'm cons- my concern is this. We, we, we hear, you hear me say prayer, and you're like, yeah, I got it, check. But my concern is that I think many, many believers don't understand that prayer is a vehicle for relationship and intimacy. In other words, we don't really, the primary purpose of praying, especially together, is not to petition God for stuff, even if it's good stuff, like health. That's not primarily what prayer is. Rather, prayer is relational. Now, does God say, ask me for things? Yeah, he does. But it's in a relational context where God, as a good father, is saying, hey, dare me. Show, like, I want to give you these things because I love you. It's not necessarily about what he gives you. It's about relationship with him. So prayer is. And so when we're able to do that and soak in that, in particular, when that becomes a community project, listen, there is so much power in the moments where as believers we're coming together and praying, really praying for one another. God is there. He's there. Maybe we don't have an agenda, we don't have a time frame. Well, we gotta be done in five minutes. No, like we're gonna sit and we're gonna soak and we're gonna trust that the Lord is gonna come. You could look at Acts for a lot of things. In Acts, there are at least three instances that I can tell where the church has a huge decision to make or something monumental is happening. And instead of going out and doing, they sit and wait and pray and the Holy Spirit comes in power, and the world is changed. Pentecost, Acts 4, Acts 13, when Barnabas and Paul leave to the Gentiles. We are here now, ultimately because they waited and prayed for the Holy Spirit to come and give them direction. We can do the same. We can do the same when we pray for one another in terms of waiting for the Lord and waiting for him to come in power and to minister to us, to to encounter the Lord, to build intimacy with him together. To build faith together. Faith is essential for being built up in what Jude is talking about here. It's essential for you as, a, as an individual, it's essential um, for the church more broadly. And all of that, like earlier, is, is really, it's really challenging. Because often, even in the midst of all of those good things, my faith fails. In the midst of all those good things, like we're honest here, we're honest, my faith fails. I don't believe, I don't trust more often than I would like. In particular, when we're talking about unresolved pain, suffering, challenge, fear, feelings of being overwhelmed, my faith fails. 
But in the midst of failing faith, friends, in this context, you will find an unfailing, faithful Savior. What does Jude mean when he says, keep yourselves in the love of God? I want to suggest to you, he means remember. He means revel. He means worship the Lord for for his love for you. An example. If you have your Bible, maybe you still have your finger in Matthew 11. Flip over to Matthew 14. In Matthew 14, you will find perhaps the most well-known story in the New Testament where Jesus is walking on water. It's pretty cool. In the story, if you don't know, the disciples are in a boat out on the lake. It's night, a little stormy maybe. They think they see somebody in the distance walking toward them. Turns out they do, and it's Jesus. When they figure out it's Jesus, Peter jumps out of the boat and starts walking on the water out to meet him. It's crazy. But before too long, if you know the story, Peter sees the wind, he sees the waves, he probably looks down and sees that he's walking on water, and what happens? His faith fails, and he starts to sink. But, but catch this. What is Jesus' response? Is he frustrated? Is he surprised? Is he fed up? Just lets him drown? No! It says he immediately reaches down and grabs him and pulls him up. He sees Peter's failing faith, and his first response is to immediately go down, pick him up, pull him close, pull him to safety, help him get back to the boat. Friends, that is exactly what God has done for you in Christ. He saw you sinking beneath the waves of your sin. He moved heaven and earth to come down and immediately draw you up to hold you close to himself. To say, no, I'm not frustrated. I'm coming to get you. To pull you close and then to help you get to safety. That's what he did when he saved you. And listen, when the author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore in your life now when your faith fails, Jesus does the same thing. He immediately moves toward you, pulls you up, holds you close, brings you to a point of safety. So listen, when your faith fails, when my faith fails, to keep yourself in the love of God is to remember what he's done, to see with clarity his great love for you, and to breathe deep. Look, think back about Matthew eleven twenty eight when he said, my burden is light. This is what he's talking about. I can take a breath because my faith is weak, but my Savior is strong, is strong. Friends, Jude's warnings in this book, as we've been working through it the last six weeks or so, are sharp. And they're incredibly relevant for you. And you have to, you have to, you've got to understand that the world, that the false teachers in the world are constantly trying to teach you, constantly trying to form you in a way that pulls you away from God. This happens in explicit ways, it happens in implicit ways. The culture is trying to lead you down a distinct path that does not lead to life. It leads to death. But here in Jude, to build yourself up, to keep yourself in the love of God is another distinct path. It goes the other way. Ultimately, 
building yourself up, keeping yourself in the love of God means looking at texts like Matthew 11 and seeing that Jesus treats his people with grace and with love, with gentleness, that he rescues you when your faith fails, that he holds you close, that he brings you to safety. All of that has the power to deepen your affections for him, which causes you to change, which causes you to love him more. And you'll be built up. And you'll be kept in the love of God that ultimately, friends, leads to life. Let's pray.